You're listening to a podcast of Family Church in West Monroe, Louisiana. Wherever or however you're listening, our hope is that this message would be challenging and inspiring for you to take your next step in your relationship with Jesus. Thanks for listening, and let's head to the message. Here's a word that you hear a bunch today, and the word is tolerance. Have you heard that word a bunch lately? Now, that word is neither bad nor good in its truest form, but in this, you know, I'll be honest, I probably have some pretty strong opinions for, toward that word in circles today, and it's not necessarily the most positive word, but that word is actually uh, not good nor bad. It just depends on how it's used. Well, the word tolerance, it's a prize virtue today. Tolerance is a prized virtue today. The ability to under the ability to be understanding of those with whom you differ is a sign of some people would call it a sign of sophistication. And the truth is, Jesus was actually a champion of tolerance. He was tolerant with the disciples when they doubted. He was tolerant with the crowds when they misunderstood. He was tolerant, he's tolerant with us when we fall. But there was an area where Jesus was not tolerant. There was an area where he was unindulgent and dogmatic. Uh, if he were here to show, share his opinion today, he would be accused of being narrow-minded, biased, one-sided, and even maybe bigoted. But as far as Jesus was concerned, when it comes to salvation, there aren't several roads. There's only one road. There aren't several ways. There's only one way. There aren't several paths. There's only one path. And that path is Jesus himself. Uh, that is why it's so hard for some people to believe in Jesus today. It's because it's much easier to believe that he's only one of many ways to heaven or to uh, this life that they want to have. But the, and that philosophy is just not an option for you and I. See, Jesus closed the door. Jesus positioned himself as the savior of the world. In defining who he is, Jesus was bold and unapologetic. When Jesus told people who he was, he was bold. He was unapologetic. He just told you who he was. He did not mince words. Well, his disciple, John, was equally firm. We're studying from John. John was equally firm. We met John when he was, young, was a young man in the shadow of John the Baptist. Then we saw him in the shadow of the cross. Uh, we now read uh, him as he writes as an elder statesman of the church. John writes his first letter to, the, to dispel doubts about Jesus. False teachers had entered the church and uh, they were denying the incarnation of Christ. John steps up to the plate, steps up to the bench, to the bench and makes his defense. After all, John knew him. John walked with him. John lived with him. John saw him heal. He heard his words. John had been at the empty tomb. John knew. See, Jesus is not one of many options. He's the only option or nothing at all. You know, there are times to be tolerant and there are times to take a stand. And there are times to take a stand for truth. In this letter, John takes a stand for truth. So that's the backdrop of 1 John. 
He's taking a stand for truth. Now, he, there's times to be tolerant, times to be all these different things, but in the on the backdrop of what we're going to study tonight, John is taking a stand for the truth, okay? So when you hear what we say tonight and you read what we read, keep that in your mind. We're, 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 it's on the backdrop that he has decided to take a stand and what any man may say or any person may say, he's taking a stand. So here's a question. Whatever became of sin... Some years ago, a Harvard psychiatrist wrote a provocative book entitled, Whatever Became of Sin. Uh, in it, he expressed his fear that sin was disappearing from our vocabulary, from our moral vocabulary. Not just the word, but the very concept of a universal standard of right and wrong or wrongdoing. He spoke of the declining sense of morality in our culture and people's reluctance to take responsibility for their behavior. He was concerned for the impact it might have on our society and on people's physical and emotional well-being. Well, that book was written in 1973, and I think we'd all agree his fears have become reality. His fears have just become reality. See, you just don't hear the word sin much more. When's the last time you heard somebody say, boy, I just sinned? You don't hear the word sin. We hear words like, you can fill these in. You hear words like dysfunction or disease. Here's the big one, a mistake, a failure. You hear those words, fill those in. In fact, a few years ago, the Oxford Junior Dictionary removed the word sin from its context, cont contents. They explained that it had fallen into disuse. It wasn't used enough to keep in their dictionary, and it was no longer, listen, relevant for younger generations. They took the word sin out, just didn't think, well, it's not relevant. You know, our discomfort even found its way to, into the church. I'm not gonna name names, but you guys have probably seen it or seen it on YouTube from years ago. A famous preacher was on Larry King, and Larry King asked the preacher, do you use the word sinner or sin? He said, I don't use it. I never thought about it, I guess. Most people just know when they come that they're doing wrong. When I get into church, I'll do my best to help them turn it around. This is not a time for me to dissect that pastor's intentions and motives, but I think we'd all agree. I think we'd all agree that when the church abandons the notion of sin, something's wrong with our message. When it abandons the thought or the, uh, the scale that, there is right and there is wrong. When it abandons that, then there's something wrong with our message. Now, if you've come to family church for any part, uh, period of time, if you did a list, litmus test, you just don't hear us talking about sinner, 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 sinner. You don't hear that. But we don't abandon the truth of God's word. It may not be comfortable. It may not be fashionable. It may not be cool. And it may not be hip. But tonight we're going to learn that we can Never live deeply. We can never live deeply with God until we deal with that word sin. In fact, when we deal with our sin. Can you say amen? So, hey, look, if you feel like speaking back to me and talking to me, you can throw something at me, go ahead and interact as we go. Uh, tonight, we're going to do what we did last week, and at the end, we'll have a time for questions. So if you have one as you're going along, <clears throat> you're welcome to ask in a few minutes. <clears throat> During this Wednesday night series, we're turning to the letter of 1 John 
to learn what it means to live deeply. Uh, we're learning that living deeply requires your belief and your behavior. Listen, your beliefs and your behaviors to align to help us become closer to Christ. And we all want that. I want to be close. You want to be close to Christ? Sure. Yeah, I want to be close to Christ. We want to move closer. And many of you left may have left last week's service and uh, you decided you're gonna make holy choices or you knew we were reading from first John so maybe even reading ahead and you said you know I, I, Lord I want I want to have my beliefs and my behaviors aligned I want to be close to you I want to live deep with you but too much is, maybe too much time has passed something happened didn't it maybe someone since last Wednesday pushed your buttons uh, maybe you reacted in anger something distracted you our thoughts were taking us to dark places we made a bad decision. A, a familiar temptation came along. See, that's just all too real. It's all too normal. See, we can end up slipping backward. We may have fell downward. We sinned not just once, but maybe, maybe multiple times since Wednesday. You know, what does that say about us as Christians? Now, first of all, I'm not pointing at you because, to be honest, tonight is a funny night. I, I was, you know, I showed up, and when you... I don't speak a lot. I'm going to calm down for a second. I don't speak a lot. And so I showed up and there were a few distractions and things that kind of weren't the way they usually are. So when you speak, you're usually not running around. So I was, if you were here, you saw me running around for 25 minutes trying to fix a couple things. But then, you know, I went backstage and I said, well, I'll just step back and I prayed and I repented and I, I did. So then during the second song, if you would have heard a very loud noise from behind stage, I went back there because I am so thirsty. I need just, Lord, let their water, I'll have real water in your water. <laughs> Run over me. So I walked back there and I stabbed my leg so hard it goes through my very thick jeans into my skin. <laughs> so if you heard that, so I said, okay, Lord, I don't need more tests. <laughs> I'm going to go stand in one spot. Isn't it funny though? Uh, how do I handle every opportunity at moments like that? I don't think the Lord did that to me. That sometimes that's just life. Sometimes I probably should have not been walking around in the dark. I mean, there's a lot of truth there. But I laughed and I went back to the choir room and stood in one spot. You know, how do we get where, uh, how do we get where our belief in Christ is growing and our behavior and our actions all align? That's a question we wrestle with. So let's pick up our reading in John. First John, I'm sorry, first John 1, verses 8 through 10. If we claim we have no sin, it should be on the screens, it should be in your Bible, it should be on your outline even. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. How many of you have read this verse more than 10 times in your life? Sure, you've read it, a, not a million, but a whole bunch, okay? In these verses, John is confronting two mistaken ideas that people tend to have about sin. In his own, in his own day and as well in our day. The first mistaken idea is that sin is not a problem. You can fill that in. Sin is not a real problem. 
But verse 8 says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's trying to dispel that. A more literal translation is, if we say we have no sin, that expression to have sin is an unusual one, which something probably the translator tried to improve it a bit. Uh, John is one of the only biblical writers to use that exact expression. He's describing sin as a condition rather than just a singular act. To say that we have sin is to say that we have a moral problem, an underlying principle at work in our beings, a disposition toward disobedience. It's not just that we do wrong things, it's that there's something wrong with us or in us. Now, nobody wants to admit to that. But John is addressing that at the moment. The second mistaken idea that people can have about sin is this. Sin is not a problem for me. Have you ever heard someone say, hey, I am way down the road, baby, and sin is not a problem for me. If you're that person, I'd love to hang out with you. I'd love for you to, well, the problem is you're prideful and you got sin in your life. Who knows? In other words, other human beings may have problems, but not me. I've gone beyond it, but look at verse 10. It says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his, and his word has no place in our lives. Here, John is not talking about sin as a condition, but sin as an action, a behavior. Apparently, there were some teachers and, and believers in the church who claimed that they had achieved a level of spirituality in which they no longer succumbed to sin. See, but John refutes both lines of thinking. You can fill these in. If we think human beings don't have a sin problem, then we're just fooling ourselves. Then we're just fooling ourselves. The second one, if we claim we haven't sinned, we're making God out to be a liar. I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of things I don't want to do, but for sure... I don't want to be that guy. I mean, his word is true and what he says is true and God is truth and everything about him is true and righteous and I don't want to ever live in a spot where I don't think I'm capable of sinning anymore. I'm past it. I do not want to make God out to be a liar. That's pretty strong language. But John knows we can never, we can never live deeply until we face the reality of sin, the reality of sin in our lives our own personal sin. Fill this in. The reality is we are sinners by nature and by choice. I'm going to let you write that down and let it sink in for just a second. We're sinners by nature and by choice. That's how the, some theologians put it. In other words, I got like 15 minutes left. Will you all hang with me? Okay, in other words, we have a disposition toward sin and we commit sins. You get it? We have a disposition and we commit them. You know, David, David said this after committing adultery and murder, David prays, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. In that verse, 
He confesses both his sinful action and his sinful nature. He, he confesses both. In Romans 3.22, Paul writes this, there's no difference for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. It means no one's exempt, Paul says. We all miss the mark. We all step off the path. We're bro we've broken the law, sometimes by ignorance, sometimes by weakness, sometimes by flat-out rebellion. But the testimony of Scripture is clear. We are sinners by nature and by choice. When we make this declaration, we're not saying that human beings are evil through and through and they never get it right. We're not saying that. You, you don't hear me saying that, do you? We're talking about the sin nature in us. The Bible's clear that human beings are created in God's image. Can you say amen to that? Man, we're created in God's image. Our very nature is designed to reflect his goodness, to reflect his love, to reflect his justice, and reflect his beauty. And sometimes, oftentimes, we get it right, and to that we say, praise the Lord. It's, that, it's just that ever since the fall of the first man and the fall of the first woman, human beings have this skew in our nature away from God and his goodness, this disposition to do wrong, do the wrong thing, to hurt the people we love, and to trash what God meant to be beautiful. Sometimes our very nature is shot through these tendencies. You know, it's not just scripture that testifies to this. Um, the human experience does. Is anyone in this room uh, really prepared to say they have, haven't done anything foolish, haven't done anything hurtful, haven't done anything rebellious? Uh, is there anyone who doesn't have to fight back tendencies that get them in trouble again and again? Man, I, that's not me. I, I have tendencies that if I don't guard my heart, guard myself, guard my eyes, guard my soul, guard, guard my lips, I got tendencies that I will default to. I don't want to. It's not, my, it's not my desire to, but it just happens if I don't tend to Arvel. What happens when you don't tend to something? You don't tend to your grass, it looks bad. If you don't tend to your garden, there's weeds that you didn't plant. Same sort of thing. When you don't tend, something left unattended never gets better. Do you know anything left unattended? I have got to tend to myself. Ten years ago, Cheryl and I were on a trip, and we had one day in Jerusalem. And we had the opportunity to go to a Holocaust museum uh, there in Jerusalem. It's, uh, it's brilliantly put together and conceived it's an experience that I think I'll never forget. I pray I never forget. They have 10 exhibit halls uh, that chronicling the horrors of the Holocaust in photographs, artifacts, and personal stories. It's all there. Uh, the ghettos, the concentration camps, the gas chambers, the mass graves, the atrocities inflicted on men, women, and children. Visitors make their way through the exhibits in a stunned and somber silence. I'm telling you, I can hear that silence right now. There were hundreds of people in that place. And it's stunning. If you've ever been to a place like that, there's nobody yik-yakking around. 
the stories, the pain that's represented in that room, the horror. It's a stunning silence. And I'm sure it was hard for each person as they stood in silence to conceive that human beings could do such things to other human beings, even other countrymen. One of the lessons we learned was there was a... Um, uh, that there was a story about some what I consider very uh, ordinary men and women. It happened just didn't happen to all these people who thought that were bad. For instance, there was a regiment of German police in charge of the Warsaw ghetto. These guys were not hardened soldiers. They were not political fanatics. They were hardworking. The story's right there. They were hardworking, church attending. Uh, citizens of Hamburg, Germany. And yet they dragged fellow citizens from their homes, tore children from the arms of their parents, abused women, shot people at point blank range and herded thousands off to their death. The record shows that the police, these police, there were 500 of them and all 500 were given the opportunity to bow out and say, I can't do this. Only 15 took that option. The rest just went along with it. I don't know how anyone can walk through that memorial and not believe there's something wrong with us deep down inside that in spite of our God-given capacity for beauty and goodness and truth, we can have a disposition toward evil that affects every part of us so what do we do with our sin? What do you do with your sin? Most of us, God willing, will never commit those kinds of crimes, but every one of us will routinely do things, say things, and think things that are hurtful to ourselves and most importantly to God. When we sin, it drives a wedge between ourselves and God, between ourselves and others between our sinful self and the Christ-like selves we were meant and created to be. So what do you do with sin? Here's some things that I think people do pretty regularly. First, they try to ignore it. Ignore it. We can just try not to think about it. Ignore it. It's, it's, it's going to be fine. It might fix itself. Justify it. We make excuses for sin. I'm not pointing a finger at you. I'm saying us, the world, the church, the church world. Rationalize it. Philosophically make a case that it's okay. Somehow in their mind, they rationalize philosophically that sin is fine. And they can sometimes obsess over it. They punish themselves, beat, our, beat themselves up to, to wallow, wallow in their guilt, shame, and regret. Chances are that you and I tend to one, toward one of these responses at some point in our lives. We can ignore it. We can rationalize it, justify it, obsess over it. The problem, of course, is that none of these work. None of these remove the guilt and none restores us to relationship with God and others. But thankfully, there is another option. Say, there's another option. Say it better than that. There's another option. Amen. The best and only real option is for us to confess it. Is to confess it. 
First John 1 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To confess your sin is to name it, own it, admit to yourself and to God that you've done it. It was wrong and you're sorry. You know, confession isn't easy. It means acknowledging your failure and weakness, your guilt, your shame. A quick side note, uh, a bunch of years ago, Sports Illustrated did this, uh, they did this sort of series and then they did a highlight of confessions of high profile sports you know, people, athletes, whatever, who had did confessions. They kind of ranked them off of how bad their stuff was and how sincere they, how sincere they were and how difficult their situation was. Uh, the interesting thing, interesting thing about this little grid is that the, the athlete who seemed to have been able to move beyond his sin and get back in the good graces of fans was Andy Pettit. I know a fan, Pastor O'Neill was a fan. A Yankee, he's a Yankee guy, right? And the reason he did was because he was the quickest to admit it openly, humbly, and his, his actions showed it. So people were quick to just forgive him. But the question, here's the question, why is confession so hard? Why don't we want to just say, man, I blew that. I was wrong. Why is confession so hard? There you go. Pride. You're afraid if you confess to someone they got that and you're wrong, then they got one up on you. And you don't like anybody to have anything one up. You don't be one up, right? You're at the mercy of the other person to forgive you. If you say, well, you forgive me, and then if they don't, you know, then what you do? It's humbling. Why is confession so hard? Let me move on. Let's talk about what God does with our sins. In these few verses, we're just kind of taking them verse by verse and talking about each part of it. As important and, and helpful as it is to confess to other human beings, ultimately each of us has to confess our sins to God. He is the primary one who we've offended and he is the only one who can do something about it. In fact, John says that if we confess our sins, God will do two things. First of all, God will forgive us. And I am so thankful. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And second of all, God will cleanse us and purify us from all unrighteousness. That word purify in plenty of translations says cleanse. To purify something is to remove what doesn't belong there, to cleanse something, to get rid of the dirt. There's a commercial out, it was out a couple years ago, about a laundry detergent. A middle-aged mother borrows a blouse from her older daughter. Her daughter's not home. She's going to be home before her daughter, so she'll put it back in the closet. She goes out with her friends, spills something all over it, but then she comes home, and there's this very special detergent who has, which has an Actilift technology in it. And she washes that quickly, and the Actilift takes every bit of the stain away, and when her daughter comes home, there's no problem with the relationship, and she told her about it, but it's better now, and they have moved on, and they're all happy. Well, you know, obviously, God already knows, God already sees, and he fills it, too. 
But he's willing and able not to only forgive. Sometimes we just get into God forgive me and we move on. And there's two parts to it. And as I, I'll be honest, I've been a little convicted the last four weeks I've been studying this passage of scripture because I've all, I'm all about God uh, forgiving me, but then cleansing that off of me. Because when it's cleansed off, I don't think I see it either. But sometimes I may not like, I may not live in what God is giving. I want the forgiveness, but he may want to cleanse something in me. And I may not want to be willing to, I know that doesn't sound logical, but guess what we are? Human beings. And sometimes we just don't do everything that's logical. Uh, the great part is he's willing and able not just to forgive, but to cleanse. I love that song, sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed us white as snow. Think about that. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washes as white as snow. Sin has left a crimson stain, the stain that most people can't ever imagine getting out. But he washes us white as snow. Man, what a promise from God's word. Let's fill these in. Forgiveness releases us from guilt. Cleansing removes our shame. Sometimes we might just go halfway, but God offers forgiveness, no guilt, and no shame. Forgiveness takes care of our past. Cleansing makes our our future possible. And all this is, is possible not because God is some softy up there who's willing to look the other way when we sin, but because of what his word says. He is faithful and God is just. And that's explained in Chapter two, verse one, it says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. God can forgive our sins because Jesus paid for it by his death on the cross. God can cleanse our sin because the blood of Jesus washes it away, no matter how deep the stain. As we close, think about this. I don't know how people who have nowhere to go with their sin and guilt and shame make it. I don't know what they do. People that don't have an option to have their sin forgiven or their shame washed away? Do they cover it up? Do they carry it around with them? Do they kid themselves into believing that it doesn't matter? How much better, to, how much better it is to confess it because then and only then we are free. Say that word free. I want to be free, don't you? Free to live from the very deepest part of our being, knowing that the deepest part of our being has been cleansed from sin 
And that's John less, that's John's lesson for us tonight. You know you're living deep when your sins are forgiven and your soul is set free. You want to have an opportunity to live close with Jesus? Let your sins be forgiven and let your soul be set free. One last little addendum I put there to fill in. This is something I, I just felt like I had to throw in at the end. One sometimes forgotten consequence of sin. When we sin, we cut away at the relationship with God, at our relationship with God. It breaks his heart. We can never address sin outside the context of relationship. See, when I try to address sin outside the context of my relationship with God, then it becomes very mechanical. Confess, forgiven. Live in his washing. And then, but if I do it just like that, it becomes like a math equation. But I can't just do it like that because it's out of relationship. You know, if, if Dylan... I love Dylan with my whole body, my whole mind, my heart, everything about me, I love Dylan. But if Dylan sinned against me tomorrow and cursed me the next day and then lived outside the funnel that we hoped and dreamed and prayed he would live in, I would still love him so dearly, but it would crush me. Do you understand that? God, our Father, loves us so much that he has such a heart of love for you and for me that when we live outside the funnel of the life he is giving us, it crushes his heart because you can't look at my, I can't look at my sin outside of the relationship and what it does to my relationship with God. I cannot look at it because it becomes math and anybody can do math. Then, you're just, then I could just end up going through the motions. You got to look at sin on the context, on the landscape of relationship. So in closing, my dear children, says John, I write this to you so that you will not sin. John wants us to understand the deep damage that sin does to our souls and to our relationships. But he also wants us to know that if and when we do sin, we have a father to turn to who can forgive us and set us free. Praise God for praise God for being faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness when we confess our sins. Can you say amen? Thanks for listening to the Family Church Podcast. You can stay connected with us at familychurch.org or by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our mission at Family Church is to pursue God, make disciples, and strengthen families. If you're in the West Monroe area, we would love for you to come join us. You can check out familychurch.org for our location and service times. 